you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Text this morning is uh, Acts chapter 6, uh, that first section there, verses, we're actually going to look a little bit at uh, 7 also, but uh, verses 1 through 6, and, um, and in these verses, as Sam was saying, we, we see the emergence or the establishment of a local ordained leadership in the church at Jerusalem. The apostles were busy with uh, the work that had been entrusted to them as apostles. Uh, we read at the end of chapter 5, verse 42, uh, what we, the text we looked at last Sunday. We, we read that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, so despite the threats of the Sanhedrin, despite being arrested now three times, despite being flogged, the apostles continued to devote themselves to the work that they had been given as apostles. And in fact, Peter said they, they must do this. He, he said, we are witnesses to these things in his speech before the Sanhedrin. And that doesn't just mean that they had seen these things. It doesn't just mean that they had seen Jesus' ministry and his, his crucifixion and his resurrection and ascension. Yes, they were witnesses in the sense that they had seen these things, but more than that, they were witnesses in the sense that they had been called to testify to these things. They were the ones chosen by God to declare the truth of, of Jesus' accomplished ministry to the ends of the earth. They were witnesses that had been commissioned to, to tell the story. That is their calling as apostles. And therefore, he says to the gathered disciples here in verse 2, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. He says, listen, we have a very specific calling. We have a, a very specific job. And it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, it's important for us to understand that it's not that serving tables was beneath them. Not at all. As we will see in the, in the rest of this, this story, they, they regard this work as being of the utmost importance. In fact, it's interesting that the same word that is used to describe the apostles' <coughs> preaching is used to describe this service of table. Both are service, both are ministry. And so we, we see that, that this work, this work that needs to be done in the church is a work that is vitally important to the health of the church. And we see that the, the apostles are going to take steps to ensure that this work is done and that it is done well. But it's not their calling. It is not their work to do. And that is why they establish an ordained leadership from within the church to do this important work. And by so doing, by, by, by having the church select these men, by setting them apart to this ministry, they facilitate the continued growth of the church. Notice we see that in verse 7. Luke writes, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. He even tells us that, that many of the priests became obedient to and when you think about that glowing summary, it's, it's, it's one of the, Luke's glowing summaries of, of the life of the early church. When we, when we think about that, it, it suggests that this 
to local ordained leadership is, is good for the church. And this is clearly confirmed throughout the rest of the book of Acts. As, as Paul goes about planting churches, he is going to appoint local leaders, local ordained leaders in each of those churches. And it's confirmed in the rest of the New Testament as well, where we are actually given instructions about how to select and, and set apart these leaders in every congregation. And so as we said last Sunday, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is our guarantee that Jesus will build his church and that not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. But this morning we see the tools or the instruments that Jesus uses to do that work. And those tools, those instruments are, consist not only of the apostles, whom he calls the foundation upon which the church will be built, Christ is the cornerstone. The, the tools that, that Jesus is using to build his church are not only the apostles, but also the local leaders that are ordained in each congregation. And so to help us sort of unpack this and help us to, to see the significance of that, I think we can, we can identify five points in this text. First, we see the need for such leaders. Second, we see the work of such leaders, their, their responsibilities. Third, we see the qualifications that are required of these leaders. And then fourth, we see the source of these leaders, where they come from. And then finally, of course, we see the results of their leadership. Now, let me say up front, there's no way I'm getting through five points this morning, so don't, don't stress too much uh, about that. We're only going to look at the first two this morning, and then we will pick up uh, the remaining points next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to begin with the, the need, the need for local ordained leaders. And that need is revealed to us right at the very beginning of this text. It's revealed when a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now most commentators agree that the Hellenists here are the Greek-speaking Jews in the church, while the Hebrews are the Aramaic-speaking Jews in the church. Now it's also likely that, that these Groups come from different places. Most people believe that the Hellenists probably came from the diaspora. That is, they, they were born and raised outside of Palestine and has come to uh, the land uh, at some course. Maybe it was for the feast and they stayed because uh, they heard the gospel and they were, they were trying to get grounded in it. Maybe they had moved here because of, of work or family. We don't exactly know all the, the details, but, but we know that, uh, that these Hellenists had probably been born outside of Palestine and had come to uh, the land, while the Hebrews, the ones here called the Hebrews, were most likely born in Palestine. They, they, had, they were from there. They had been born and raised there. And so we have a difference here of language. Some of them are speaking Greek. Some of them are speaking Arabic. We also have a, a difference of, of origin or geography. Some of them were from, from the diaspora, from all around the, the empire. Others have been born there in the land. But John Stott points out that there's, there's also a, a third division between these groups, and that is a division of culture. <coughs> Think about the difference between a native New Yorker and a transplant from the South living in the big city. All right, I'm going to take that one. <laughs> They're both Americans. They both live in the city. But nevertheless, there is an undeniable cultural divide. One of the things you have to learn to do if you're from the South is not to smile at people when you're walking down the street. Not to say hi. You know, not to be polite when you want to ask for directions. You, you, because all those things, 
are interpreted differently in the city, interpreted differently on the, the streets of the city. You have to, to learn because there's a, there's a division of culture. That was the same with the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They were both Jews. They were both living in Palestine, but there was undeniable cultural divide. And just as Southerners and Yankees can look down on one another, each thinking their own culture superior, so also was it with the Hellenists and the Hebrews in the early church. And so that's the context. That's what's going on here. We have this, this cultural language geography division between groups in the growing the church. The, the church is growing, and as it grows, it's attracting people from, from disparate backgrounds with, with disparate views. And that kind of bringing together of people from different cultures leads to some conflicts. It leads to a complaint, to a grumbling, actually, we could say. And so what is this complaint that arises? What is, what is the complaint? Well, we're, we're told, Luke says, that the Hellenists believed their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, you remember back in chapter 4 that we were told that there was not a needy person among this young congregation. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then from there it was distributed to each as any had need. And so people were giving generously out of the resources that, that they had been given to care for the members of the, the congregation who didn't have those same resources. They were, they were truly living in fellowship, in koinonia. They, they were loving one another well. They were sharing their lives with one another. So much so that Luke could say there was not a needy person among them. And all this was being done through the apostles. Notice that the, mon the monies that were collected from the sale of these houses and these fields were laid at the apostles' feet and from there distributed to those as they had been. But as the church grew, and it was growing. Remember, we've, we've seen thousands upon thousands added to the number of the disciples so far in the book of Acts. But as the, the church grew... Distributing those funds became more and more complicated, more and more challenging. And it would seem that some in the congregation here, the, the Hellenists, believed that it wasn't being done all that well anymore. They believed that their widows were being neglected. They believed that their widows were being overlooked. They were not receiving their share of the funds that were collected to care for those without resources. And we don't know if that was intentional. We don't know if this was intentional favoritism or if it was an accidental oversight. Luke doesn't tell us. Some commentators say that it must have been unintentional since it was the apostles who were in charge of the distribution. But we know that the apostles were them, not themselves impeccable. You know, the, the apostles, yes, when they write the very words of God, they, they write inerrant scriptures, but that does not mean they were inerrant in all of their lives. Uh, we, we know for a fact that, that Peter uh, fell into a lifestyle that was out of accord with the gospel, uh, that, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face because he, he stopped eating with Gentiles. So we, we know that the apostles are not impeccable. It's, it's possible, it's conceivable uh, that, uh, that they were uh, responsible here for the favoritism. It's possible that they were in the wrong. It doesn't seem likely, though, 
Secondly, uh, the apostles had employed some who to help them with the distribution, and either either they weren't fully up to the task because it was complex, it was big, it was hard, or there may have been some preparation at that level. We're not exactly sure what was going on, and the truth is we don't really need to know. That's why Luke doesn't tell us. We don't need to know exactly what the details were. We don't need to know whether this was intentional or whether it was an accidental overstatement. In fact, we don't even need to know if, if the injustice was real or only perceived. Again, the way that Luke phrases it here, it seems to be that it was actually the case that the widows were being overlooked. But I'm sure you have all heard of situations where someone complained about something being done unjustly when in fact it wasn't the case. It is, it is certainly possible that the Hellenists had, had misunderstood or misperceived and, and they were complaining about their windows being overlooked when it wasn't actually true. But you see, it doesn't actually matter what the source of the grumbling, it doesn't actually matter what the source of the, the division is. Yes, the solution will look different depending on the facts. And so you do need the facts. I'm not suggesting that the facts don't matter. You know, if, if the if the injustice was intentional, then there's going to be a one solution. If it was an accidental oversight, there's going to be a, another solution. If it was simply perceived, there will be yet a, another solution. But the fact is that the grumbling, the complaining, the division itself, regardless of the source, has to be addressed. The grumbling has to be addressed because this complaint threatens... The unity and the peace of the church. And the apostles recognize it. They, they immediately propose a solution. But before we, we dive into the details of their solution, we need to recognize this morning that the situation in the church today is the same as the situation in the church there in Jerusalem. The church today consists of people from different cultures with different perspectives on a whole host of issues. Now, this is obviously true of the, the church university. I mean, you, you think of just going outside of the walls of this church. You just go to the, the, to the churches in Cleveland, and you're like, okay, yeah, there, there are a lot of differences. And then as you continue to spread out to the ends of the earth, those differences become even more pronounced and even more obvious. But we need to recognize that the differences aren't just between congregations. The differences are within congregations. The differences are within Trinity. This congregation consists of people with different perspectives on a whole host of issues. Now, I know you don't doubt that because you have seen it with abundant clarity over the course of the last uh, year and a half. The, the pandemic has, has clearly revealed some of the cultural differences that exist within a congregation. Just the very fact that, that some of us, are, that we're wearing masks this morning, we won't have masks at the, the second service, re re reveals that there's, there's a difference of opinion about the best way to respond to... Uh, the pandemic, there's a, there's a difference of opinion about whether masks should be required or whether they should be optional. There's differences of opinion about whether we need to distance from one another, whether we should have limits on, on the, the size of our gatherings. There's differences of opinion about the vaccines, and you can go on and on. The, the pandemic has revealed multiple uh, cultural and, and uh, differences, multiple different perspectives on any number of issues. But let's not forget that we had cultural differences. 
about coronavirus. There have always been differences within the church. I remember when I got to my, my first calling out of seminary, one of the big differences in, in the church there, one of the differences that I was instructed to be sensitive to uh, by the elders who were calling me as an assistant pastor was the differences between the families who, who opted to, to educate their children at home, those who opted to educate their children in a Christian school that a lot of the teachers were at our church, and then those who opted to educate their children at public schools. These were cultural differences, and, it, and they were significant differences. And so there was a, there was a, a cultural divide in the church. There was a cultural divide about worship styles. As Sam mentioned it in the children's service, some of us prefer organ music, some of us prefer uh, guitars and, and drums. There's, there's, a, there's been a difference about worship styles for as long as I can remember. And it probably predated me, but it, it's at least as old as me. There's been this difference about worship styles. There, there's differences about politics. I'll just lay my cards on the table here and say, I remember the first time I found out that a Christian could be a Democrat. <laughs> It was surprising to me. Right? You know? And, and, and there's, there's differences about, about political candidates. There's differences about political policies, about what policies are best. There's, there's differences about uh, what social justice means. What does it mean to pursue justice in society? And whose job is it? And what's the best way to do it? We have cultural differences. We have different perspectives on a whole host of issues. Sometimes those differences within the church are, are merely preferences. Other times they are real moral issues. They are real justice issues, as, as seems to be the case here in Acts 6. And when it is a justice issue, yes, the sin needs to be confronted and corrected. But even when it is merely, if I, I, mean, if I may use that term, even when it is merely a difference of preference, our differences still need to be addressed for the sake of maintaining the unity and the peace of the church. I'm not suggesting that we all need to get on the same page. I'm not suggesting that we all need to agree about all of these different issues. But we need to navigate our differences so that we can walk a course that keeps us united even when and as we disagree. Because unity in the church matters. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers. And when you hear Paul use that language, he says, I appeal to you. This is an urgent appeal. What, what comes to mind first for me? It's, it's Romans 12. I appeal to you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. But here in Corinthians, what is the appeal? Here in Corinthians, the appeal is that there be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and the same judgments. You see something similar in Ephesians. All right, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the, that's the transition. For the first three chapters, he's been setting forth the profound doctrines of grace. He's been, he's been setting forth the gospel. And now, in the second half of his letter, he's going to turn and he's going to begin to, to apply that to the life of the believers. And he says, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And one of the first things that he mentions uh, that, is, that is characteristic of a life worthy of the gospel, a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called in Christ, 
is that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity matters. Why? Paul says because there is one body, and there is one Spirit, and there is one Lord, and there is one faith, and there is one baptism, and there is one God and Father of all. There is one true and living God. He has one Son who is the who is the Redeemer and the, the mediator between God and man. And those who come to Him are one body. We are one people in Christ. And maintaining that unity and walking in a manner worthy of that unity, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel matters. The divisions that we see in the world over cultural differences, the way that they separate into groups and go to war with one another, or maybe even just ignore one another. Those divisions must not exist in the church. It's not that we can't disagree. It's that we can't divide. We cannot divide over our differences because we are united in and through Jesus Christ. And therefore, whether the differences are, are differences of opinion or whether they are differences related to, to moral issues, we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We need to walk in a manner that preserves our unity, and we need help to do so. And that's exactly what this text is about. We need leaders who can help us to navigate our differences in a way that brings glory to God and, and good to His people by maintaining and celebrating the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what we see the apostles proposing here in this text. Look again at verses 2 through 4. The apostles here referred to as the twelve. Notice what they do. They, when they hear the complaint, they summon all of the disciples together to respond to the complaint. And, and that shows us how seriously they take this. They are, they are calling all of the disciples together. They, they are having a, a massive congregational meeting here. Now, in part, that is because they, they recognize how important it is to care for the, the needs of the poor. They, they recognize how important it is uh, to, to care for those without the resources to provide for themselves. But that's not actually the main issue. It's not that the church was neglecting the widows. It was that they were ne neglecting some of the widows. The, the church at this point still recognizes the importance of, of caring for the poor. They, they recognize that, that, that mercy is one of the weightier matters of the law. They are still uh, taking steps to, to care for the marginalized and the oppressed in their community. It's not that they were neglecting all of the widows. That would be a different issue. What's going on here is that there is favoritism, that some of the widows are being neglected. And the apostles see that as serious because, as I was saying, such division, such favoritism, the favoring of, of one group over another, such favoritism, such preference is antithetical to the gospel. Again, it's the, it's the reason that, that Paul's rebuke of, of Peter when he, when he stopped eating, when he stopped sharing table fellowship with, with Gentile sinners, as he calls them. When Peter divided himself from the Gentiles in the congregation, Peter rebuked him 
publicly. Why? He tells us. Because he saw that his actions, Peter's actions, were not in step with the gospel. Such divisions are antithetical. They are contrary to the gospel. That's why James can call partiality evil and contrary to the way of Christ. And because showing partiality is out of step with the gospel, it begins to fracture the unity that is created by the gospel. Paul tells us in Ephesians that the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, the dividing, uh, the dividing wall that, that separated us when we were in Adam, that dividing wall has been torn down through Christ's body. It has been torn down through his death and resurrection. Through, in, through and in Christ, we have been united. We have become one. And therefore, when we walk out of step with the gospel, by allowing something other than the Lordship of Christ to, to take preeminence in our lives, whether it's, it's money, as James was talking about, or whether it's cultural heritage, as we, we seem to see here, the unity of the gospel is fractured when we begin to divide over secondary, tertiary issues. And is that kind of division, it is it is that kind of disunity that the apostles are here seeking to nip in the bud. But, but notice something, and this is vital, I think. Despite the seriousness of the situation, right? They, they, are, they see this as serious. They see this as a big deal. The church cannot divide over these issues. But despite the seriousness of the situation, and despite the, the grave potential of the threat, the apostles say that it would not be right for them to handle the problem directly. Now you would think, you know, if, if this is such a serious issue, if, if this is such a, a potential threat, that the apostles would be like, we got to handle this ourselves. That's what leaders today usually do. You know, if, if something's a big deal, we're going to handle it ourselves. And the apostles say, no. It would not be right for us to give up preaching to serve tables. We have a calling. We have a, a specific task given to us by God. And we must devote ourselves to that work. This is important. This matters. But we can't handle it directly because we have our own calling. And therefore, notice what they do. They instruct the church to pick leaders from among themselves to handle the situation. First three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I know that many people see this as the beginning of the distinctions between the work of elders and the work of, of deacons in the church. The, the apostles are saying, listen, we have a, a ministry of the word. We have to preach and, and teach the gospel. But there's also a need for a ministry of tables, a, a need for someone to serve tables, and someone to, to tend to the bodily needs of the congregation. And so there's a division of labor here within the church, a division of labor where some are devoted to the, the ministry of the word and attending to the spiritual needs of the congregation. Others are, are devoted to a, a ministry of tables and attending to the bodily needs of the congregation. And so there's a division here where, where between the work of elders and the work of deacons, because God has given two ordained offices to his, his church, elders to carry on the work of the apostles and, uh, and to uh, devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word, 
and the deacons to take up the service of tables and to, to care for the physical bodily needs of the church. And so we, we see in this text the beginning of that division. And there's something to this. Clearly there's a, a division here between the, the ministry of the word that the apostles are devoted to and the, the ministry of tables that these men are going to be set apart to. But I actually think there's a, a more fundamental, a more foundational division of labor here in this text that we are supposed to see. And that is the division of labor between the apostles and the local ordained leadership of a particular congregation. Now that local ordained leadership will be later divided again. But that division actually isn't fully on display here yet. In fact, some of these men who are chosen are going to be men who are engaged directly in the ministry of the word within the next few chapters. And so the, the clear division between elders and deacons within the local ordained leadership of the church is not yet fully uh, born yet. It, it's not fully on display yet. But rather the division here is the division between the apostles and the local ordained leadership of church. And that division matters because the work of the apostles was foundational. The apostles have been set apart by Christ himself to speak with Christ's own authority to deliver the faith once for all to the saints. They were laying the foundation upon which the church would be built. In fact, it's the foundational nature of their work, which is why there are no apostles in the church today. Other, other offices, other gifts, they, they are repeated. There are no apostles in the church today because the work of the apostles was foundational. And once the foundation is laid, you don't keep laying the foundation. You begin building on the foundation. So the, the foundational work of the apostles is, is, does not continue in the church today because the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. But here... We see that, that they, as the apostles, must give themselves fully to that work because it's not been laid yet. They're still in Jerusalem. Remember, the task that was given to them was that they were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so that foundational work is still going on. Uh, and, and clearly it's a work that needs to be done. And so the apostles say, listen, we cannot neglect the work that we have been given to do, the foundational work we've been given to do. But local congregations need leadership. They need ordained leadership. They, they need uh, leadership with the authority of God to lead the people of God in walking in the way of God. And that is exactly what the apostles are setting up here in this text. Here in this text, we see the, the emergence of local ordained leadership within the church. Now next Sunday we're going to have to come back to this. We're going to have to unpack this more fully. We're going to have to uh, uh, talk more fully about what their responsibilities are. And we're going to have to talk more fully about what their qualifications are and, and how they're chosen and all of that. We'll, we'll get into that next Sunday. I thought we'd get to a little bit more of this morning. But um, nevertheless, what we need to see here is that what, the, what they, they are getting at, what they, they are beginning to do is they say, listen, you need leaders. Why? You need leaders to help you Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel proclaimed to you by the apostles. The apostles deliver the gospel. The elders don't do that. The, the, the apostles deliver the gospel once for all to the saints. Our authority as elders is ministerial and declarative of the, of the gospel delivered to us by the apostles. So one thing a church must do is to let the apostles be the apostles. They must let the apostles and the 
with wisdom, seek to chart a course where we live in accord with that gospel in the reality of our present situation, in the reality created by the, the differences within our own congregation. How do we live together in unity when we disagree? How do we live out the gospel when we view things differently? That's actually exactly the question that your ordained leaders have been trying to answer for the last year and a half perspective. The whole time, our, the question we've been trying to answer is how does a congregation with people who, who, have, who view things very differently, how do we walk together in love? How do we walk together in a way that, that celebrates the, uh, the, the unity that is ours in Christ? How do we do that? And I know we haven't done it perfectly, but we have been striving to do that from the very beginning. Even this decision to, to reinstitute mask mandates for the first service and for Sunday school, which I know makes some people, probably more in the second service, a little less happy. Right? You know, it's, it's not what we want. But nevertheless, we are striving. How do we not divide, but remain united even when we disagree? How do we live out the faith once for all delivered to us by the saints? That's the question. That's the question put to your elders. That's the question put to your deacons. That's the question put to your ordained leadership. It's the question we've been striving to answer. And I want to say, I appreciate the way that this body has allowed us to lead. I know that you've not always agreed with our decisions. But you have humbly submitted. You have humbly followed. Even when you expressed your differences, we have done, I believe, a remarkable job, testimony to the work of the Spirit upon us, remaining united as we move forward. And my prayer for us is that we would continue to remain united. It's been a long time. We're tired. But let us continue. Let us continue to strive for that unity which is reflective of the gospel as we continue to seek to walk out the gospel in the course of our daily lives. Because that unity matters. We should not look like the world. We should not be divided the way that they are. But they should look at us and be amazed that people with such disparate views can worship together and love one another because when we do that, when we live out the gospel as we're called to, verse 7 will become a reality, even here. The word of God will continue to increase. And the number of disciples will multiply greatly in Cleveland. Because people will see there is power in this gospel. People will see that Jesus truly is a Lord worth following. And because we can have such a unity in the gospel, that's what we call this good. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it. Father God, we rejoice in your place. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the witness of this text, Father, that the apostles appointed leaders to help the people walk together in you. Father, may we be such a church. May our leaders lead us in unity and may the people joyfully follow as together we put on full display the oneness that is ours through our one Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his name's sake that we pray. Amen.